Another installment of Show to Be with Mike G, the show of life, amplifiers, guitar, science, New Orleans, and so much more. With today's guest, the owner and president of Jay's Records, Mr. Ted Bro, the man responsible for bringing Absinthe back to America. And his Absinthe is an amazing portrayal and historical homage to the old style flavors of French Absinthe. And we talk about how he extracted those flavors, how he rebuilt the market for Absinthe in America, and so much more. Lots of music talk in there as well. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this great chat with the man who brought Absinthe back to America, Mr. Ted Bro. Very uh, creative cocktails, but also very good. Difficult for us to judge. Yeah, we had um, participants come in from San Antonio and Houston as well. Um, yeah, it went on for quite a while, and then uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then we um, stopped in at Peche after, and of course, yeah. uh, and then ran into this, this, some of the same people who had the same idea. Imagine That's that. Right. Yeah, I think Sean was one of the guys. He works at Peche, and then he submitted a yep. cocktail as well. Yes, and uh, yes, and we thought very highly of that cocktail. Um, in fact, that, that whole crew did. They submitted Yeah, and uh, did very well. And we, uh, we were there until uh, fairly late last night. Big crowd on Monday. Quite surprising. Yeah, well, they've got, they've got great deals on Monday. But it kind of makes me think. So it, I think that the your spirits company... We're talking 2000, right? Where it was actually like officially formed, whether there was yes. stuff to market. Yes. So you're here 16, 17 years later with people ultimately paying creative homage to the spirits you've brought to the world. How do, how do you feel about that now over 15 years later that people still using your stuff, still paying tribute and being creative with your tools? Well, I mean, in 2000, I became the first person to actually analyze samples of vintage absinthe mm-hmm. drawn from the sealed full antique bottles yeah. using modern science. It had never been done. Deconstruct or uh, reverse engineering, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, eventually it, that's what it came to be. Originally I was um, just looking to find out what it was that could have caused this bad reputation. I was looking for something that was injurious or you know uh, hallucinogenic or right. something that was mal, something that should not have been there. Right. And, um, and I found nothing. And um, that began, that was, first of all, a, a paradigm shift in my understanding, because I had studied absinthe for over six years by that time, um, began a paradigm shift in my understanding, had to rearrange the, the pieces of the puzzle and found yeah. that, wow, wait a minute, now all of a sudden the pieces started to fall into place. But as soon as I learned that and realized that, wait a minute, something... Then I knew, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. I knew right then my mission either had to be A, to write a really good book, okay. or B, 
just to keep some of the details to myself and find a way to bring this stuff back because right. there was nothing wrong with it. So, well, at least I knew that the greatest brands of absinthe in history, the ones that were immortalized in, you know, the artist literature and poetry, exactly. Yeah. So I knew that there was nothing wrong with those. Right. Um, so basically, I knew that I had to. I knew that I had to find a way to get this to, to reproduce this stuff. And that's so. That's why I incorporated the company in 2000. Although I wouldn't actually actually release anything under the Jade name until 2004. Right. But well, it, it took, just takes so long. It took me that long. It took me trips to France and 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 you know because absinthe was illegal in my own country. Not that I could really do what I wanted to do in my own country. Right. But you know, for me, um, I struck gold in 2003 when I met the you know the owner of a distillery that. Uh, basically was in it and unmolested since the 1880s with mm-hmm. all the original equipment the distillery that distilled absinthe before the ban and who was uh willing to um just give me the reins you know it was like captain nemo in search of the nautilus and he found it yeah well they don't want to be a man ignited by passion you do not want to stand in their way <laughs> you know? well that well I, I and i appreciate that attitude on the other hand here in you know in france and um, in a time when it wasn't even really clear that absent, uh, not not everyone believed that absent had inadvertently been relegalized with mm-hmm. the, with the formation of the European Union, right? Which superseded all the old laws. That's amazing. Well, um, but that didn't entirely go unnoticed because, um, unbeknownst to a lot of people, is I became in two thousand seven, shortly after we. We got, got the band product, lifted here yeah. in the United States, which is a you know, in a, of course, a whole subject in itself. But I became the last producer in France to be charged and fined under the original absent ban of 1915. No kidding. Yes. And is it a, is it a lofty fine? You have no idea how draconian <laughs> the penalties are. They wanted to. I was threatened with um with jail. Really? Yes. That and big of a deal. The reason why is because in 1988, when the EU passed all its food and beverage laws. Someone in the Ministry of Health in France realized that this would re-legalize absinthe, and they quietly passed a decree that said, if an absinthe-like spirit contains enough grand absinthe, enough fennel, Mm -hmm. and enough hyssop, which is basically, you know... Just the grassy root. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then if it contains enough of these three, then it would legally be declared an absinthe, and all the penalties from the original ban would magically reappear. That is... I was the only producer found to be in violation. Did they even research anybody else doing it? Yes. Oh, they did? Okay. I was the only distiller in France found whose products were found to be in violation. So you can deduce from that what you like. Right. But because of that, 15,000 liters of aging distillate were seized. I still had the customs tags as a cruel souvenir of that experience. Yeah. Cost me thousands of euros in fines. God. And um, and we just wanted the dust to settle as quickly as, as as we could, and it did. And then after that, we put a legal team together and went to the Ministry of Health and said, please show us the scientific basis, the justification for this right. law. Yeah. And of course, I've researched it, and there is none. No, of course. Well, that's... And, and they couldn't yeah, do it. Yeah, always the case, right. Yeah. Right, so they couldn't do it. And they said, well, we can't find it, so this decree has to be stricken. And we're like, thank you. Finally. So they did that, and that swept aside the last vestiges of the absent ban in France. Wow. I didn't get my money back. Well, of course not. I did get my distillates back. They might have given you a handshake and said, "Well, sorry, we're gonna 
take the money still. Well, but. but but you see, the, the the attitude in France was, well, here you know we're, we'll just circumvent these. You know we'll, you know with the other distillers is well we'll just not break the rules. Yeah. And with me, it's like no, you know, <laughs> damn the torpedoes, That's full right. steam ahead. <laughs> That's right. Of course, I paid the price, but you know I've got. Good street cred in France among distillers, of course, because they're like, "How is it that an American, you know, would come?" And it's get always this an change? American, isn't it? Well, you know, but the thing is, but remember, I ran. Into, I was like the you know captain of the Titanic, steering right into this iceberg. Right. I didn't even know it was there. Yeah. So inadvertently, I became that person. But um, but you know, the thing is, it's just to get this done and to pave the way for the renaissance mm. of the category that is absent, and th- which was a hugely important spirit back in the day, not just in France, but Oh, globally, yeah. It was a, it was an object of global commerce. It was a muse. That's it, and and to just to to pave the way for absence renaissance was a very trying task that required years yeah. of persistence. How do so? Okay, so back to that question then. Does it make it feel all worth it now that it has been embraced? That people are using it creatively in the ways that absence was intended to be used. Back in the 19th century, and that was—that's our mission. Yeah, that was our. And in fact, when we were trying to convince it, the U.S. had the last standing ban right. on absinthe, effective ban, and that was the TTB's argument: mm-hmm. was you know we just don't want this to be brought in. We've seen the debacle that happened in Europe, you know, with all this fake, you know, flavored mm-hmm. vodka mm-hmm. from the Czech Republic that had green dye that was promising hallucinations and all this. You know, the TTB had seen that. They didn't want that to happen here. Neither did we. Right. And really, the, 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 the argument was, you know, they needed to get to know us and, and realize that, hey, we wanted to see absinthe returned to its original place of respectability. Right. Quality. Equality. Yeah. That's right. They didn't want the debacle that happened in Europe to happen here. We didn't want it either. And that was our mission. So the thing is, we've achieved our mission. And that, as you just said, Absinthe has returned to a place of respectability in the world of classic cocktails, which is a global phenomenon. Absolutely. um, Which is great. It's great for the industry. It's great for consumers. It's opened doors for producers of quality products. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been a great thing for it. But so I I feel satisfied in that we've achieved our mission. Now. I tell people my life is still, it's 85% education and about 15% distillation. So, you know, really, uh, and, and the reason why, once again, I'm here in Austin, Texas today, um, is in the name of education. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a never-ending project. It's like gardening. You just keep tending to it, but That's you right. never really get to a finish, finish line. And it recharges us. You know, I do find that when you get to be in front of an audience that's very inquisitive, very inte- intelligent, that that helps you keep going, refills your sails, so to speak. You know, people, that audience often, say, you know, they ask me, you studied absinthe for 20-something years now. Yeah. You know, I mean, don't, don't you feel like you've exhausted the, the, the subject? And I tell them, you know, the beauty of this, aside from the fact that, I mean, this isn't just liquor i mean this is economics right. politics art you know science good and bad absolutely i mean yeah. there's, there's just so much wrapped up in the in the story of it that i never really get to the, i never really reach the bottom of the rabbit hole mm. i mean there's still questions that you know, i can't honestly 
answer. Right. I can only speculate. You know, that's the beauty of it. And I never intended for this spirit to hijack my entire professional career. It just happens though, doesn't it? It did. And it, it was weird. I was kind of like, you know, I was an outlier. I was sort of the right person in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And just being a native of New Orleans and having seen that word, you know, the old absinthe house and things like that. Um, and it was really kind of a perfect storm of events that put me in a position to to do this. All right. So so then, because I love how serendip- serendipitous things happen and then we all of a sudden are on this completely different path. But from my understanding, you grew up in New Orleans, and what kinds of things, because you're, it's interesting because scientists often are very, very cold and calculated, but you've got this charisma, you have this ability to light up a room, so you have both the social elements and the kind of the mathematical elements that a scientist does. So as a kid, question being, what kinds of things were you getting into? Were you playing music? Were you drawing? I was getting into lots of mischief yeah (laughs) um yeah um i grew up um basically all along i-10 okay yeah lafayette baton rouge new orleans you know the whole thing sure um yeah but you know one thing about me is i have an analytical mind but i also have a creative mind yeah and um satisfying that you know creative thirst has always been interesting and yes since you mentioned i did play in bands back in new orleans that was an alter ego i was it a persona a bowie-esque persona that, that, was a, that was a very different persona and no one in my professional world you know i kept those worlds firmly divided yeah right. which i like i like car- compartmentalizing these things sure and so i could be these different people but um yeah so um what'd you play by the way I'm just um actually i played um i i played lead guitar i played bass yeah. i yeah i did vocals you know i was um if you uh, could assign a genre what genre might you assign it oh i you know i, I tell you for me, I mean, um, the the things that I really enjoyed the most were um, were '60s Britpop. Speak my language, zombies. I the zombies, Amazing, the Kinks, yeah. the Who, the Yardbirds. Yeah. You know, all that stuff. Did all those things. Had the original equipment. Did you really? Service, I would restore. Not only that, I, I I gained another side project, a profitable hobby, uh-huh. whereby I would get amps sent to me air freight from England, amps that were found in the cellars of homes, and I would restore oh, them. So not only did we play 60s Brit pop, but we had the original equipment, all the guitar, the instruments, the amplifiers, everything, old tube amps, all maintained and restored by me. It's amazing. So, yeah, so I got into that thing. And then there's still some articles out there in the web that I, you know, posted back in like the 90s uh-huh. on... Um, on authenticating like uh, reissue amplifiers, boxes and, and yeah. mad amps and orange. I still stuff. own them. Still, own oh them. man, no kidding. I still own them. So uh, I had some equipment. You know, one of the things about me is I, I sort of uh, had my own uh, experience with the Great Flood of yeah. Hurricane Katrina. Uh-huh. Seven feet of water in a house in New Orleans, which is why I no longer live in New Orleans. You're in Alabama um, now, is that right? I'm in Birmingham. Oh, yeah. Birmingham. Yeah. I'm about 700 feet above sea level now in the uh, southern tip. By of the design, I'm sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But um, Birmingham is a it's a it's a vibrant place and it's definitely moving in the right direction. I like it a lot. But um, yes, so while, while I was um, yeah back there, I had all these 60s era original guitars and amplifiers, and I maintained all this equipment. I would restore them for other people around the country. Wow. And yeah, it was were you were you like the guy? Like touring bands would come in and you would repair their stuff. They would contact you. 
Oh, they, they would marvel at our back line. Oh my gosh! I mean, people like, is that a is is that a yeah? That's a, a 1958 Gretsch Duojet. Oh my gosh! Um, yes, that is a 1966 Epiphone Casino. Yes, that is a 1963 damn, the, the Gretsch Tennessee. That's oh yeah, oh, yeah, that's yeah. crazy. So we had, I said, we had all this stuff. People yeah. were like, you know. How did you nail Keith Richards' opening riff and I can't get no satisfaction? I'm like, well, because I'm using the same uh, Maestro FZ1A fuzz tone uh, with carbon batteries. Yeah. You know I mean? Oh my God, that's crazy. Yeah, I know. It's nuts. Did you want it? Did, so we all, all right, we're in Austin. So you can throw a dart and you're going to hit a fucking musician. That's just how it goes. Yeah. Did that become something where you're like, actually, you know, I'd really like to be on the road. I'd rather be a touring musician than going to school and doing science. Well, it's, you know, the thing is back, um, and I had this struggle back in the 80s where I had to make a decision. I came to a fork in the road, yeah. and that was either I was going to finish college, okay, or I was going to play guitar. Yeah. And I realized that, honestly, I couldn't do both. Wow. Um, no, because I'm, if I'm going to do something, I've got to do it 110%. Right, right. So um, Didn't want it to be divided. That's right. But no, I had to, I had to take care of business, and I had, to, uh, I had to finish. I had to get that degree. I had to get, um, you know, I, I had to have a real profession. I was there, like was there pressure from your folks to do that? Or was that more for you because you seem inherently ambitious? Well, that was, that was more about me. Yeah. Um, you know, and I knew that I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Sure. But I knew that I was really good in applied sciences and that I had to get some credentials. I had to do something. I had to put something together like that. Right. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I, I did that. Um, and it took me through uh, four universities, and um, I even started a PhD um, that I couldn't continue because of Katrina. But um, was it the one at Tulane? Is yeah, that was post, at, yeah, that was at Tulane. And then some Harvard studies too. It looks yeah, like. yeah, I, yeah. I started. Um, I started at Harvard, and um, actually attended Harvard while I was still in high school. No uh, kidding. Yeah, and then um, um, LSU, University of Louisiana Lafayette, right. and uh, yeah, and then eventually made my way to Tulane. And there's um, a common thread through these with these degree programs, and that is. That ultimately chemistry and plants right yeah uh, environmental chemistry um and my environmental microbiology and chemistry you know were my specialties yeah. and i literally traveled the world and um basically uh you know uh, finding ways to solve environmental problems um organic contaminants uh you know degrading them using bacteria mm. um which is quite interesting and can, uh, can you fun. give me so let's uh, let's take a place perhaps like india which has infrastructurally a lot of challenges when you talk about those health problems that, or those puzzles that you're trying to solve, what right. might be a way to articulate that, that to me? What might be something you try to solve or help in a community with? Oh, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a good example. Yeah. You've got um, some um, place that's uh, being redeveloped, uh, and it's got an old gas station on a corner mm -hmm. that had some underground storage tanks that leaked gasoline for oh, years. Yeah, okay. So how can you, without digging up the whole place, which is impractical, how can you solve the problem? Wow. So, yeah. So, um, right. So, you know, it's real challenging three-dimensional kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I mean, and, you know, and, and I was good at, good at it and I developed algorithms to do this. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, um, it was, uh, generated some good karma that way, I think. That's a, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Putting it back in there. Yeah. yeah at least, you know, I, I felt like I was doing something, um, you know, productive and, yeah. and I was, you know, if I may say so, I, I was pretty competent at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, and all that absence sort of became a, the, the study of absence became like a, a side project. Sure. Like a little, like a research hobby. Okay. Yeah. Did you, in terms of just drinking in general, right, or alcohol, which which to me is one of the direct conduits to a culture globally, right? Sure. You go to Cognac, sure. go to Cavados, whatever. So you're traveling a bit. 
did you see any kind of passion for spirits just in general as you were kind of in these other cultures? Well, for me, that started back in back in my university days. I did some bartending. Oh, did you really? Okay. Yeah. And um, one of the things that, you know, I looked at um, different spirits, but, you know, from uh, a chemistry standpoint. Yeah. It's like, okay, what, what makes this, you know, whiskey better than this one? Right. What's the difference between cognac VS versus VSOP? You mm-hmm. know, what's going, you know, wh- why? You're digging into the details. I did. I did. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is, I, I sort of had a bit of that in my background. But absolutely, I'd never heard of that. Yeah. You know, what, what was that stuff? I mean, I'd even heard of Baijiu, but I never heard of Absinthe. Really? Yeah. You're ahead of the curve on that one. Now it's all flipped. You know? Yeah, well, someone brought me a bottle of Baijiu from China yeah. uh, back in those days. So if someone, uh, I wanted to get someone out of the bar, um, I just offered them a free shot of Baijiu. And that no, gener- notes of horse pee and mushrooms. That, gener- <laughs> that generally were. And the, and the irony is I really like Baijiu now. Find yeah. it fantastic. It's like sauce with alcohol. That's too. right. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah it is really like, is. Like, yeah. So- like, yeah, like stir fry sauce Unctuous, with alcohol. yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Lots of umami, but um, um, yeah. So um, you know, for me, I I, I was and, and really, I you know, it happened back when I was working in a lab, mm-hmm. and I, and um, I had seen the old absinthe house, and like many many people had seen it, never put much thought into what absinthe meant, what right. that was, and and then I got this alternative books catalog in the mail. Alternative books catalog. Yeah, you know, this is back before Amazon. Yeah, because Amazon has <laughs> yeah, yeah. all started selling books before yeah. Amazon. It was alternative books. I mean, you know, with all sorts of things like, uh, you know, phenylethylamines I've known and loved by uh, yeah, Shulgin, <laughs> which was a classic. Um, you know, how to grow like your own uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Okay, see, know. all right, there we go. I get yeah, this. Yeah. yeah, and one of them was a book called Absinthe History in a Bottle by Barnaby Conrad, Chronicle Books. San Francisco, 1988, which is still perhaps if there's one book about absinthe that a person would buy, and that would be the one. It's amazing how good of a book that was considering all the rubbish yeah. that was around, how good of a book that was that was published in 1988. And I read that book. I got a copy of that book, read it like three times inside of a week, and I even wrote him a letter. Not everyone had an email address back That's then. right, yeah. Was where, like, was, hey. where was he from, New York? No, he's uh, San Francisco. Oh, right, right, right. And um, I wrote him a letter. I said, hey, I love the book. You know, great job. You know, incredible amount of research went into it. But I have a few questions. Yeah. Like, what about this, this? And and he wrote back and said, basically, everything I know is in the book. I don't know. I was like, okay, wow. And I just couldn't find any good information. And um, and you were you were not you were dissatisfied with the answer. I was completely. I couldn't believe that something that was so popular. And if it was harmful, then why did so many people drink? I mean, what was the deal? What was the hook? What was the catch? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I wanted to know, but there, were, of course, there was none around. Nobody knew real. Uh, there was no good information on what was in it or exactly how it was made. I mean, there were only hints. You know, and the thing is, um, and where I really got hooked is when I walked past a place on Charter Street, a French antique culinary antique shop, still there today, Lucullus Antiques, and I saw a couple of absent antique absinthe glasses and spoons in the window. Oh, nice! The slotted spoons. I went back the next day. I went. I, I was walking with a date. Saw that. I was like, "That's it. I'm." coming to this place at lunch tomorrow and i'm getting that i bought those and i was completely hooked and i had so i had the antique glasses and spoons had everything except the liquid and i needed that needed do you that. so i i mean I, I don't throw this word around too often but rebel right seems like you're on the verge of punk rock with the bands that you like and this thing's emerging from the who if you take it and then manchester blows up in this big scene buscocks and stuff do you, are you that kind of person that's not going to be standardized is not going to live within the boundaries you want to keep pushing and keep pushing until you get 
somewhere else. Does that make sense? Well, I, I guess if, if I become <laughs> fascinated yeah. with something, and I, I'm a scientist, I want answers. That's right, yeah. And but, if, the, but the creative mind is what helps you get them in a way. You that's know? right. That, that, that's, it, the creativity is needed to obtain those answers. That's right, yeah. And uh, basically, I was very, I, I can be a very determined person. Very. Especially when I think that, that, that what, the, the obstacle that's keeping me from achieving my goal is something ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. then, I love it, man, because it's, it's, it's like a bulldog, but articulately bulldogging your way to, to the truth. Right. Bulldog. I need to know. Yeah, right. It's a good, that's a good term. I have to remember that. Yeah, but that's exactly what it was. I was very, very determined. Yeah. Um, and for me, you know, I, I started, I, I realized it then, and the only way I was going to get absinthe was I had to distill my own. Right. Which was, a, you know, some success, some failure. But um, the Rosetta Stone was in 1996. Yeah. yeah, I came across not one, but two full bottles of vintage absinthe from two very different directions within 30 days of each other it was nuts it was like it was like lightning striking somewhere in the middle of the sahara desert like right twice um and it was uh yeah and the thing is so when i was able to draw samples through those sealed bottles and and taste them um and then i became in a very i, I became a member of a very lonely club of people <laughs> who knew firsthand what vintage absinthe tasted like oh who were, no who were alive to talk about it oh my gosh um so that um yeah and that really you know by this time i'm totally hooked and i'm determined but this time i'm determined i want to know what's in it right did you feel any obligation to be the conduit from the past to the present in well, a way you're like a uh, kind of reaching beyond the grave in a sense you know yeah it's, for me it was like how can there not be a credible how can there not be credible answers to these questions which are so obvious yeah and the, and the answer, the reason why was simple. And that, that is because no one really had vintage absinthe mm. and modern science, uh, scientific equipment, the same place at the same time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how many people do you know come across bottles of, you know, antique absinthe? You have never. No, nobody. <laughs> yeah. Nobody. You might have grabbed the last few in the whole country, really. Well, uh, in the country, um, yeah, possibly. It was next to nothing, obviously. But, you know, it's like... Um, yeah, it was crazy. But, you know, I, the thing is, at this point, I wanted to know what was wrong with it. Right. I mean, here's my profession is, you know, part of my profession is I analyze soil and water samples. Yeah. Looking for trace, you know, amounts of, you know, dangerous contaminants, you know, dangerous pesticides, things like that. I want to know what's in this stuff. Right. What made it bad? And so back in, you know, like I say, in the beginning of the conversation, back in 2000, I found, I had the opportunity to do it. I had the opportunity to do it. And I found nothing. So it, all, then, it started to make sense that it didn't make sense. Well, and then it's like, you know, sometimes Occam's razor holds true. Yeah. Well, not more than sometimes, most of the time. Sure. And basically then I realized this is just the gin craze all over again in a different place with mm. a different spirit 150 years later. Wow. You know, and that's what it was. And the thing is, you know, people ask me, where in the world does one come across a full bottle of antique absinthe? But that's what it was meant to happen for you. You know That's what I mean? a strange thing. It's yeah. like when people say, how did you find those? Like, I didn't. It's like they found me. That's right. The sword and the stone. You're the only one that That's literally <laughs> could pull it out of the bottle. And so I was just somehow became that individual. But, you know, and then, and then, I mean, you know, every once in a while, there's some old 
estate, some big chateau in mm. France or Italy or Spain that's been in the same family for generations. Right. And all these places had their own wine caves, their own wine cellars below yeah. the house. And basically, there's oftentimes just loaded with piles of dusty bottles and no one who's alive really knows what the hell's down there. Yeah. And so you got to have someone that can go down there and identify these things, determine what can be sold, what should go to auction. Of course, living, someone's got to come someone's in. Someone's <laughs> got to do it. And the fortunate thing is... I know people that do this. And every once in a while, see, because when people caught wind back then that absinthe was going to be banned, right? Stocked what they do? It. They stocked it. Yeah. That's it. They scrolled it away. The thing is, unfortunately, particularly in France, a lot of people died in the First World War. A lot of young men who would have inherited this. So it was like a whole generation skip, right. if you will. And some of these bottles of absinthe just never got imbibed and got forgotten about. Wow. And the thing is, people that had wine cellars had money so they never bought cheap stuff that's right yeah so whenever we it's like oh you know it's like going and finding champagne oh another bottle of you know salon 28 i mean the thing is all the absinthe that we find is all almost invariably really good top brands that's what people who had money bought yeah and the thing is the one thing we can't study is the equivalent of a you know cheap wine mm -hmm. you know a really cheap absinthe that was marketed toward poor alcoholics that would have had the indulterance that caused the problems that the French talked about. It was notoriously, yeah. That's yeah. right. But you know, the thing is, in Anglo-American culture, we never experienced those problems. Especially here in the States, we never experienced problems of people drinking absinthe and going to sanitariums. Why? Because the cheap stuff didn't get exported here. I see. We had all the top brands, even going way back. I mean, in New Orleans, we find absinthe being imported there. We find it in the stock list and advertisements in newspapers as far back as like is the 1830s. No kidding. Yeah, which is really gr crazy because, I mean, that's before absinthe was even popular and that was only when that's it was right, just yeah. becoming sort of popular in France. And Anglo-American culture by 1900 was all about fancy cocktails. Mm. And that's the way absinthe was. We used it for the most part. So when you think of absinthe as a genre in itself, because it's something so unique about it. And first, I'm just curious for me, when you stumble across one of these ancient dusty bottles of absinthe and you do crack it open what is the difference is there a different experience that you get just by tasting something that's that old and has had so much time to kind of mature in the bottle well um that's actually interesting that you mentioned that because um um anyone who's interested in spirits who's listening to this will know that basically whiskey cognac they don't age in a bottle that's what well, right right because right. there's not right but, they don't age right. in a bottle but Absinthe does. Chartreuse. Chartreuse yeah. does as well. And similar products, they will age in the bottle. And it's always a, um, you know, when, when you taste 100-year-old absinthe, which is great, by the way. Um, it, of course. It tastes great. Kind of, yeah, it's got it. It doesn't taste exactly like what it did 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And 100 years ago, people weren't drinking 100-year-old absinthe. So right. therein lies another challenge for you to. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Another piece of the puzzle. Um, and, I, and I had this conversation just recently in London with uh, this distributor has a, an amazing vintage spirits collection. And we, and I was talking about this. So he said, well, let's pop open a hundred year old bottle of chartreuse and let's explore. Of course. It. Yeah. Not as like, well, oh right? gosh, you know, <laughs> it really hurts my ears actually when it, to hear that cork come out of the bottle, but it's like, okay, it's open now. I may as well. At least you're in the room for it. May as well indulge. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's uh, there, there is no better way to go through um, to learn about historical spirits and to drink them. That's right. It's to be in a position to be able to do that. <laughs> How do you feel about that? 
that um, you're like a world renowned uh you know honestly i'm i'm such a purist i have never opened um a bottle of vintage absinthe actually no i take that back i did but only to cap it with nitrogen and then reseal it for, i see for someone um what are you what are you waiting for i, so I know i know well you know the, the, the fortunately for me is i know people who do open those bottles yeah and and they're actually quite sensible because when someone opens a, a, a bottle of vintage absinthe, they'll often decant a, a large portion of it into like 50 mil, you know, bottles, like right, mini, right. mini, like mini liquor bottles and we'll sell those, which is great because then, then, then it gives people who don't have, you know, several thousand to spend on right. a bottle of vintage absinthe. You can spend, you know, a hundred bucks or so or whatever and, and still get the and taste it. Yeah. Why not? I mean, tasting history, you can't replace that. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, I, I'm glad, I'm thankful that I know people who are willing to open bottles of, you know, um, you know, or demijohns of 200 year old demijohns of Rome Agricole, oh pre-phylox for a cognac and yeah. But the beauty is, you know, history doesn't, what's in the bottles, it doesn't lie. So know? the, the bottle, are you a man that's of the moment? Do you experience these things and think about it as like this right now is as good as it can be until the next present moment does that make sense some people are too obsessed with the future and put it that way well I, I can obsess i do think ahead and i do obsess about the future a bit um um i am sort of uh i tend to be nostalgic and sentimental yeah um and to me yeah it's hard to open a hundred year old bottle of anything um and when someone says you know it contrasts that with someone i know who says hey let's drink some wine sure and pops open a you know thinks nothing of open a bottle of 1900 Tokai Essencia, yeah, you know, which uh, I couldn't do, but I'm glad there's someone that can because that's the only way that I'll I'll get I'll <laughs> get to a, try it. Is there a moment that would be monumental enough for you to open one of those bottles up? Oh yeah, I mean, I have my Armageddon Day. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> uh, I'm at a positive moment, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've certainly tasted some things. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, and and thanks to the wonder of epidural needles, yeah. epidural syringes, um, one can draw samples from bottles and taste them without actually opening the bottle. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that. Okay. That's and right. Which is how you were man managed to reverse engineering the older bottles, uh, right? Well, yeah, pr pretty much in some cases, yes. Um, and, and, and also how I managed to co-author a couple of published scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals oh, on wow. the composition of vintage absinthe. Amazing. Which wouldn't be possible without bottles that were in good condition that were sealed. Yeah. Where we have, you know, witnesses present and chains of custody to draw samples That's to amazing. guarantee that, you know, the integrity of the study is uh, intact. But, um, yeah, for me, you know, um, it's good that medical devices can be repurposed. See, it's using uh, your acumen <laughs> in science to be able to, you know, to pull it in. Uh, yeah. How can I... Push I don't a needle through a cork without yeah. <laughs> stopping the needle with cork. Oh, the epidural syringe. See, it's the, I mean, yeah. man, I'll tell you, it's that's how new genres are born. Whether it's music, whether it's film, it's this intersection of talents and interests that allow people to do these new things. And oddly enough, or ironically enough, absinthe is not new, but bringing the original essence of it to the present—that's new. Does that make sense? Like reinventing the past? Well, that's way. it. And the thing is, when the case of absinthe, unlike whiskey and gin, absinthe had been absent from the market. I mean, virtually extinguished from the world market. Yeah. You know, for the better part of a century. So, in the in the with the whole classic cocktail phenomenon, you know, I tell people that if 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 I had to be marooned on a desert island with one cocktail book, mm. it would probably be the Savoy cocktail book, sure. nineteen thirty. Oh yeah. 
published by an American, Harry Craddock, that, that went to London during Prohibition so he could continue to bartend. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that book contains over 100 cocktails that call for absinthe in some way, shape, or form. Wow. And the thing is, and part of, you know, sometimes in bar training, what I'll do is I'll make a cocktail that contains, uh, you know, ingredients like grenadine or um, lemon juice, whatever. And I'll do one with completely industrialized modern ingredients mm-hmm. and one with the original natural, you know, the way that it was done. And of course, there's, all, I mean, only one of these cocktails you, you taste and it, it makes sense. Yeah. And um, yeah, so the thing is, if you want to have, you know, want to be able to recreate classic cocktails, you need spirits that taste like classic spirits. Vintage amps, man. Yeah, you, that's it. It's all vintage amps. It got to sound like it got to have it tubes. It has to sound like that's vintage. Right. Has to have the right composition capacitors and mm-hmm. resistors, the right value electrolytic filter capacitors. You know, all this stuff. It's the same thing with spirits. It is. It's, yeah. it's a, the devils in the details, and there are a lot of them. Yeah. And basically, marketing's cheap, but, but hey, what the liquid doesn't lie. That's right. And um, and one of the beauty about being able to taste old Tom Gin from the 1880s is you know what it tastes like. Mm-hmm. And especially when you have something that doesn't have a legal definition to protect its integrity. Right. I mean, for example, we take some we take some alcohol and add some caramel coloring and some artificial flavoring and we call it bourbon whiskey. We're gonna run into trouble quickly. Oh yeah. Absolutely. It'll never we'll never even get it on the to market. Right. Because bourbon whiskey is protected. Um absinthe isn't and never has been. Mm. Um, so, and that's always been that's always been a problem, and we're trying to rectify that problem right now. There's only one country actually that has a legal definition of absinthe, and that's Switzerland. Oh, no kidding! Yeah. Well, they have the, their own clear version, right? The Blanche yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but um, that is something that needs to be changed, mm. and that's always been an issue. You know, when you when you taste bourbon whiskey from the past as compared to today. It generally tastes very much the same, with right. with exception of the fact that they didn't chill filter in those days, and that does make a difference. I've much more oiliness and that's richness. It. Yeah, that's it. I've had the privilege of tasting some pre-prohibition bourbon on more than one occasion, and I marvel at the oiliness that makes it. That's all filtered out, uh, so the contents today can be crystal clear and look pretty in the bottle. It's auto tuned, Ted. It's auto tuned. That's bourbon. right. Yeah. And that isn't written in the legal definition. Yeah, but the thing is, you know. Aside from that, yeah, it's it's not too far off. Um, yeah, with absinthe, you know, there was nothing, so you could put anything in a bottle and call it absinthe, and that was the wave of part of the wave of misinformation. Yeah, that I swam against. So it it seems like you know we're at a point in your well, not we, you're at a point in your career where you've traveled the world, you've been an amazing spokesman of the past, while also helping people, empowering them to do things with absinthe for the future. Where do you retreat? you now so when you're not on the road when you're not judging competitions or having classes what kinds of things are you doing back in Birmingham well um back home in Birmingham um uh once again I, I have a different persona yeah um obviously there are cocktail bars and uh, sure sure and some and restaurants with good cocktail programs and you know they I mean obviously they know who I am and yeah and I know some of these people and and um and but but for the most part I am reclusive um, I grow, um, I'm, I'm sort of a horticulturist. Yeah. Um, I've noticed the pictures are very be- beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm sort of like an Indiana Jones of <laughs> rare native medicinal plants uh-huh. that are endangered, um, which I attempt to, um, 
procure for the botanical gardens, for the ethnobotanical collection. Basically, anything I grow is either um, edible or medicinal, um, including the plants that are used to produce absinthe and Mm -hmm. and many others that were um, well-known a century ago. A lot lot of them in botanical medicine, and today are virtually, you know, some of them are almost impossible to find. So that's been uh, an interesting challenge, and it's basically um, gave me a good excuse to learn the practice of 19th century pharmacognosy, which is the preparation of botanical medicines. Oh, wow. Interesting. Which has um, been of great benefit to me um, in the commercial world. For example, Dale DeGroff's Pimento Aromatic Bitters, which mm-hmm. I co-created with Dale and Produce. Um, things like that. Uh, you is probably, you, you may also know that I produce um, Perique, Jade Perique Tobacco Liqueur. Yeah. Not yet, um, not yet, um, Legal in the United Proof, States. Yeah. yeah, we're working. We're working to with the with the FDA to uh, see if we can't change that. The grass, but, um, man. The check. Yeah, the, that list. The grass list is such a pain. Yeah, exactly. Um, but they gave me some hoops of hard to jump through, and I'm I'm jumped I've jumped them. So now it's their turn. And um, do you find it hard to create that separate life where you're out of the media limelight? That you're just the guy out there in nature doing his thing. Well, I think in maybe in Manhattan I wouldn't be able to do that yeah um, I think there are a lot of places I wouldn't be able to do it um, but where I am and just the fact that I can get away in 40 miles and hike through a very hilly 159,000 acre national forest yeah um, yeah I kind of like that or I can just day trip and I can get up to the Smokies or down at the beach if I want so these kind of things allow me to disconnect but you know it's when I can disconnect I'm just the type of person that I, I recharge my mental batteries when, when I don't have a lot of people around mm. and then I can get to my own world in my own thoughts. And that's when I can think about things and ponder them and be creative. Yeah. So that sort of, that's the, that fuels my professional life. Are you still playing too? Playing guitar every now and again? Um, you know, the thing about that is that tends to be, um, an obsessive sort of thing. What do you mean? Yeah. For example, you know, um, I, I, I picked up a guitar and, and started playing not long ago and then watch this video from 1981. I think it's called, um, it was by Rush. It was their whole moving pictures. Uh-huh. Tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stage left. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I, yes, yeah. I, saw, I was like, God, man, these guys were really good. Yep. So then it was like I got the idea in my head that I wanted to play that whole video. I mean, everything all the way through. So naturally, <laughs> I got the same amplifier setup that he had, the same guitars, the same effect. You know, it's like, it's yeah. like why am I doing this? That's a I, great question. Yeah, it's like I need, I really need this, like I need a hole in my head. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, and I guess some people play video games. That's right. Well, yeah. this, was, this was my video game. A little more productive, I think, in your case, but. Well, it, I think, you know, a little more musical, maybe. Sure. Um, it didn't require a high speed processor um, and a 60, you know, um, um, MBPS connection. Right. But the thing is, it does take time. And, you know, time is the, time is the most precious resource that I have. Mm. and ultimately it this is same for all of us yeah you'll always make another dollar you'll never get another day back that's a great point yeah so um that has uh as i have um um, time has worn on that's i've come to realize that it's an interesting place to arrive at to have success globally and then saying well actually this is great but i need to tune it out yeah and i need to get back and connected with nature well you know i think i think that you know it, we we all know the term burnout that's right yeah. and i think that the reason why it's unfortunate you know whenever we get burnout with something burned out on, on something that we enjoy doing oh, or or even a profession but the thing is you know for 
for people like me, and I think there are a lot of us, we have to, whether we realize it or not, we have to completely disconnect ourselves mm. and find something else. Everybody needs a hobby. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody needs something. You know, some people play Sudoku. Okay, I do other things. I, I, I grow plants. That's an endless sure. rabbit hole of... There is yeah. no end. Yeah, there's no finish line. On no, that. there is no finish line. And, and there's lots of, you know, and, and if I get some sort of rare, ultra rare plant from the Galapagos Islands and, and I'm growing it, and there's no information on how to cultivate it. Mm. See, then it's all uncharted territory. But I mean, that's Indiana just, Jones. I I need yeah. some, my my mind never stops from the moment I wake up until the moment I go to sleep. Fortunately, yeah. I can turn it off to sleep. But the thing is, it never stops. The voice in my head is always going. Yeah. And I need something to chew on, like a dog needs a bone. Right. Right. I need to give my brain something to chew on, even when I'm not really doing anything that's productive professionally. Yeah. So that's I just find that's 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 how you know. I've learned myself. I know what I need to disconnect and unplug. And I think a lot of other, I think part of our, I think part of our downfall as a society is we, especially with the advent of the information age Mm -hmm. and digital media, I mean, Facebook, you know, everything is just, there's so much information and it comes so quickly Yeah, and we're just, we're overloaded with it. Is that good for you? Because it seems like someone who constantly feeds on learning and feeds on knowledge and that's debatable whether stuff online is knowledge or not, but at least it's fodder for you to think and keep creating. Is that a good or bad thing for you? It's a double-edged sword. I mean, it's just it's 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 just as much of a curse in some ways as it is a blessing. Yeah. You know, while it is a conduit, a vehicle that provides us with the ability to accumulate information at a much faster rate than anyone could 25 years ago. Yeah. On the other hand, it's also it's a it's just a it's it's a potential source of stress. That's right. And, um, you know, I think that I know what works for me and what helps me keep my sanity. And the thing is, I really like the world of spirits and be able to create spirits. And not just spirits, I mean, spirits that really, in my opinion, are important or aspects of them that are important and and explore those. But if I get burned out, well, then what does that serve? Yeah. It doesn't serve me or anyone else really. You can't can't help anymore. That's right. Yeah. And I'm thankful that the information age has allowed other people to appreciate the things that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think in a way has reshaped the whole category. I mean, you know, think about even just craft beers, you know, and, and how that's the whole craft beer, you know, explosion, how that's happened. And, you know, how, where would that be without the internet? The ability to socialize it, right? Yeah. yeah. To a larger audience. Exactly. Would, yeah, it wouldn't be practical. Point. I mean, it, you'd have, I mean, so many of these, you know, craft breweries wouldn't have opened. Yeah. Well, it's a way to actually build a brand now. It's a vehicle, a channel that was not there before, a digital channel. That's right. And, um, but on the other hand, it's a source of stress because yeah. now how much of our day is consumed in, uh, by the digital world? That's a great point. So the thing is, once again, you know, it's everything in moderation, including the digital age. Yeah. Pick and choose your battles. Tune out. You know, I, I, I found, can find myself, I can waste half a day sitting, just even looking through news articles, yeah. but things that don't even have any bearing on on me in any way, shape, or form. I know it's the, we're, we're all kind of complicit in that, you know, and we encourage we all each are. other. So, but we, it, yeah, so I mean, that's I feel like you struck a pretty decent balance, though. Being so connected to nature, that does just by design take you out of technology. Getting your hands dirty, getting getting your mind just filled with these details about nature's the smells, things that technology can never really replicate. Well, balance is um, balance is the key, in my opinion, to a healthy mind yeah. and overall to success and gratification in life. 
Absolutely. And sometimes I feel like I'm the guy in a unicorn with a big stack of plates in each hand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, on a, a unicycle, rather. Um, unicorn. Either way, I like both yeah. images. I think yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> unicorn. Yeah. Okay. No. That. Well, yeah. All right. That's interesting too. Because um, if you're, yeah, I mean, the luck and the serendipity, it's much like a unicorn-esque kind of presence if you think about it. Well, for me, the hard work um, and the whole realm of absinthe, uh, m- most of the hard work is is done. Yeah. We've stemmed the tide of misinformation. Um, thanks in part to the digital age. Thanks also in part to the craft cocktail revolution, which mm-hmm. happened simultaneously, which couldn't have been better timing. Yeah. Because that sort of that was the the wave that that carried you know um, the whole category of absinthe on a surfboard. Absolutely. You know? So um, great timing on all of these things. Yeah, that's all been serendipitous. Yeah, um, for the most part, and um, and for me, it's opened up um, some avenues to do some other things. But once again, it would be very easy for me to jump into a situation where I make myself all, much busier than I need to be. Yeah. So you know, it's maintaining balance. Um, so I've got one one last question for you because. Sure. I love that you're deeply rooted in music and that you think about those details, that you've had your hands on amps that I've probably drooled about over the years as a kid, you know? And for me, I, I'm really curious how you answered this. So let's say you're sipping absinthe anywhere in the world, your favorite bar, someone's chateau, wherever, and you could have a conversation and share that drink with anybody living or deceased. Oh, wow. Who might you like to share that absinthe with? Wow. You know, I... That's not the first time I've been asked this question, mm. and it's really difficult for me to come up with a straight answer in the same way that it's difficult for me to come up with a singular answer when someone asks me what my favorite film is. Oh, that's tough. Yeah. No, I, this is tough for me the same way because yeah, there's right. so many different people. Can we, how about, let's make it someone French. Okay, is that fair? Someone that may have actually been part of that absinthe culture as it oh. started to come up. Oh, I tell you what, I would just, I would, if that's the case... I mean, and specifically relevant to what I do, I would definitely like to go back to the 19th century and I would very much like to speak to, I I would very much like to speak to one of maybe three or four distillers back in the day. Mm. Interesting. Just to ask them a few questions that only a distiller would know that wouldn't necessarily end up in, would be a would be a, a mindless detail right. for the public that would be. But the things maybe you've been striving for for years, right? Yeah, just um just a couple of, you know, I, I would I would just like to share I ideas. Yeah. You know, I, I would really like to um sort of pick their brain and see how accurate I was about it. certain things that I've surmised had to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. an amazing way to look at it. Yeah. Why just, not? Just verification, but I think it would be fascinating just from a cultural standpoint to go back and talk yeah. about it. Well, I want to talk about one movie then real quick just because it's fresh on my sure. mind. Did you ever see Midnight in Paris? It's a Woody Allen movie. <laughs> I've seen some, yeah. I, I, you know, and the funny thing is I do, I do find Woody Allen um, comedy amusing. Yeah. But no, I don't, think I've seen, I don't think I've seen that one. Is, um, who's in that one? It's Owen Wilson, Rachel McAdams. Oh, that's right. With Hemingway, Picasso. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's probably one, I, that's one that I overlooked and just kind of vanished from my mind. No, yeah. not seen it. Because it, it's got the Belle Epoque in there. And there's a scene where there's all the art at Gauguin is meeting. And it's just a really, it made me think about absinthe as a thread of the culture and the social nightlife. And I've, I don't know, just thought about you that you might like that. Well, you know, in the days before Facebook, when being social meant that you had to, actually had to go to a place yeah. 
and meet up with your friends, you know, around when you knocked off of work for your daily medicine like everybody else did. You know, I mean, that was, um, that was definitely a, um, I mean, you know, bars in general today are cultural, uh, you know, social centers. Like right. you say, it's more than just like alcohol. Alcohol yeah. is the, you know, is the lubricant. That's right. But the, but the thing is, you know, in those days when I explain to people, just imagine, you know, that you went to the cafe every day. There was no television. There yeah. was no internet. You know, I mean, you know, people now have, you know, so many people now that you see in bars have never known a world. They weren't around a world where there was no internet. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's getting that, that picture of the past is getting, as we move into the future, is getting more and more difficult to, to replicate in our own minds. Yeah. I think yeah. we're striving for it more every day too. I think that's why I wanted to sit down and talk with you. Just talk, you know? Yeah. Sometimes no, we lose that. I mean, with each passing year, we're, we're more and more plugged into the matrix. Mm. Truly. Yeah. Truly. Yeah, we are. Well, it's been really a pl- pleasure chatting, man. Privilege to thank you on what I'd consider short notice, taking some time out to sit oh, it's chat my pleasure. with you, man. Good to be, good to be here. Yeah. Good to be here. Austin's a great spot and we're really glad to have you. So yeah, let's keep it weird. Yeah. Safe travels, <laughs> mate. Thanks. Well, there we have it. Mr. Ted Bro, the founder and president of Jade Liqueur is bringing lucid absinthe, kind of this historical throwback to classic absinthe that Ted collected and extracted. I mean, a master scientist, an amplification guy. There's so many different pieces to Ted, and it seems like he's so intelligent that he's got these different chapters, these different silos to his life, and he keeps them all afloat. And it's great to have him in Austin judging the Lucid Absinthe Cocktail Competition. And I hope to talk to Ted soon and maybe even get a look at that classic amp collection he has there in Alabama. So thank you for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter how many episodes you are into Netflix new series, Ozark, and you're thinking Jason Bateman really rules as the protagonist here, or if you're thinking I could use a great glass of absinthe just about now, please keep dancing.